I'm here to give the introduction to the, the four the four gospels basically is what we're gonna do and Tanner will be picking back up. So of course the four gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Alright, how's that for an introduction? Alright, All right, Tanner, come up. <laughs> <laughs> if you are tuned in on Facebook watching, we want to welcome you. And we'll be going through not just one book of the gospel of, of the gospels, but all four basically looking at the life of Christ and really Understanding the cross through the four Gospels. There's a lot more in there than what you probably have thought. The Gospels are some of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, they're so rich and full of not just information, but the parables and the miracles and the teachings of, of Christ. All, of course, leading up to the climax of the Gospels, which was what he did at Calvary. The price that he paid there is just tremendous. From the, from his birth to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, it is the focal point of the scripture. It happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament, obviously, and it is the focal point. Everything from the Old Testament pointed to what we see in the Gospels. Yeah. You know, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that we see in the Old Testament. We're going to start with the Old Testament tonight. Genesis chapter 1. I'm just kidding, we're not going to go there all But every, as I said before you, but the Gospels do not start just when Jesus came in, 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 in the sense that it had been prophesied, it had been spoken of throughout the scriptures. The promise went all the way back to Genesis, really, of a Redeemer that would come after man fell. The Old Testament is filled with the promises of a coming Redeemer. And that Redeemer, of course, is the one that we look back and see that it was Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, they have the promise of that coming <coughs> Redeemer. He who would, he would come and redeem them. The promised one was much anticipated by the Jews as they believed God's multiple prophecies of the coming Messiah. Now we know that when he did come, that as a whole, they missed him. The Old Testament scriptures were filled with prophecies, uh, and we're going to look at just a few of those here tonight regarding the coming of Christ. There are, there are actually too many to go through. If we were to actually go through all of them tonight, we'd be here for a long time because there's a lot of them. We're just going to go through a few. Regarding Jesus' birth, Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 and 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Micah 5 and 2, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. I mean, everything was mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes you, when you look back on it now, you look at the Old Testament scriptures and wonder how in the world did they miss that? Yeah. How in the world did they miss that? Concerning Jesus' ministry and death, Zechariah 9 and 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. And of course, that's how he, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In Psalm 22, 16 through 18, it says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That was a scene from where? The cross. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Jesus. Just in the Psalms alone, there are so many messianic prophecies there from David. Like
likely the clearest prophecy about Jesus is the entire 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Beautiful words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each, have, each of us has turned to our, our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was opposed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now this was, we're written to Israel. This was Isaiah. So these prophecies were to Israel, meaning, meaning what he's, if you, if you understand it from that perspective, it says that he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Isaiah, the prophet, when he's writing this, this is with Israel in mind. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. That's how they looked upon him. That he's not the man he claimed to be. You know, heal yourself. Those that took him there, the idea was that God is punishing him for claiming who he is to be. Look, if he was really who he claimed to be, this wouldn't happen. That was the mindset. He's supposed to be a conquering mm -hmm. redeemer. See, Israel, he's not a conquering redeemer. Look at this. God is smiting him. This was their idea. But it was prophesied by Isaiah that this very thing would happen. That even though they would have esteemed him as stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted, yet he was pierced for our transgressions. Wow. While he was on the cross, this was, this was the, the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. He was being pierced for their transgressions. But even though it was written just for Israel, even though that prophecy was pointed at Israel, it's also a promise for us. For we also needed one to save us from our sins. I thank God that gospel has gone not just to the Jews, but also Wow. One of my the favorite parts of scripture, it was go into all the world and preach the gospel. What, Jerusalem first? Yes. And then and to Judea. Judea, Samaria. We are the uttermost parts of the world. Yes, I thank God that the gospel came into the yes. uttermost parts of the world yes. where we could know of this Redeemer. Wow. What a story. What a what a what a powerful story that we see unfold in the gospels. And I'm really looking forward to to this particular study. Isaiah 50 and 6 accurately describes the meeting that Jesus uh, endured. Zechariah 12, 10 predicts the piercing of the Messiah, which occurred after Jesus died on the cross. Remember when they put the spear in his side? But when we get to the book of Malachi, we see a prophecy that comes forth there and I'm going to read uh, Malachi 3 and 1 and then also uh, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. And in chapters 4, verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming 
of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Who is he talking about? Who was he talking about there? I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming. Who is he talking about? John the Baptist. Keep in mind, Malachi is the last one in the book that we see in the Old Testament. And right here, we see at the very last book of the Old Testament, we see that prophecy coming. Now, there were 400 years approximately after Malachi before we see John the Baptist coming on the scene before we see the beginning of the writing of the Gospels. 400 years of silence. They actually called them the silent years, where there were no major prophecies that were not there. God wasn't moving, and did, he did nothing, but it was in pockets and remnants. But as a whole, there was no major uh, prophecy. So we have Malachi here prophesying that there would be one coming, a messenger. He shall prepare the way. Was John the Baptist. And of course, as we get into the Gospels, we see that John the Baptist indeed came. Now, during that 400 years of silence, during that 400 years where there was no major prophet in Israel, uh, Israel was transformed. And what you see, the product of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Zealots, and uh, there were many, actually, uh, sects in that time, uh, different religious groups. Uh, we would call them denominations. Yeah. And there were many of them that developed, and they were different. We read a lot about in the Gospels of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and how Jesus really went head-to-head -head with these Sadducees and these Pharisees and these scribes over what appears to be, when we read it, the law. But what would be deceiving is for us to think that Jesus was coming against the very law that he had something to do with. No, it was what they had made. It was there. It would be similar to him coming into uh, any denomination that we have now and coming against certain man-made rules, man-made. So I never, I never did this. I never ordered this. I never said this. And they made all kinds of rules and laws and fence laws. Tanner talked about the fence laws a lot in Romans. So what we see when Jesus came developed during that 400 year period because where there's no clear voice from heaven, guess what happens? Man takes over and he makes his own. And that's what we see even now. All of our denominations, same thing would happen today. If Jesus were actually to come in the flesh today like he did 2,000 years ago, he would be dealing with the same types of religious leaders who would ultimately crucify him. The Pharisees are actually some of the most interesting people that you ever run into. They are the picture of the legalists. They were something. I'm sure we'll get into more of that as we go through. I think Tanner has some specific notes on that, unless you have something to share right now. No, we're, we're going to see so much of it as we travel through all the books that even if I, I, I probably never, in the teaching of it, I'm never going to get a chance to really give you the details that I want. So what I'll probably end up doing is making a handout for you that'll have the information so that way you can go ahead. So what we see when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist comes on the scene first, the religious system in Babylon Israel was so far from the way that God had established it. They were so far away from that that it didn't even resemble. I mean, it was, it was totally different and it was just a form of what it was supposed to be, but it had no real power. There was no power in it at all. All right, so the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, tells about the fulfillment of all of those promises, all of those prophecies that we just talked about. They are the fulfillment of that. Everything that we just, and there's so many more that we could have went through, 
the, when we get to the Gospels, we see the fulfillment of all that as John the Baptist comes and Christ comes on the scene and his death and his resurrection and all of these things, all fulfilled in Christ. Everything in the New Testament, Old Testament was really fulfilled in Christ, even the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, but to fulfill the law. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all written from different perspectives, and together they give one complete picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, how he was the Messiah, uh, the Savior uh, of the world. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew and Mark and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels, and the word uh, synoptic just simply means alike. They're similar in content. The vast majority of the stories are the same, and chronologically they are similar. So what does the term gospel mean? John is a little bit different. We'll talk about John in a little bit. You might know what the word gospel means, by the way. Good news. The word gospel means good news. Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. Yes. But the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Greek word translated gospel means good news or glad tidings. It was good news. So when we speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's good news. The gospel is good news. I want to tell you one of the things that sometimes you see, especially when a church has become legalistic in their form, and they don't preach really the cross, they become very legalistic and hard and preach holiness, and their heart may be right, but it looks miserable. It doesn't look like good news. It doesn't feel like good news, you know. God's going to get you. you know? We did it to our kids, and, and uh, ignorantly, you know, sorry, Karen. But, uh, you know, I can remember saying things like, you know, Jesus is watching you. I mean, like, I mean, he is, but I mean, like, we make it sound like, you know, you know, it's like, the, you can tell our kids that enough, and they're like, they, they, I don't know about you, but I was like, you know, I, I don't like Jesus, you know, if, he, if he's always watching me, and he's always out to get me, I, I get this picture of God, who just, he just wants to get me, and he can't wait until I mess up, you know, the gospel is not preached about a savior that just wants to get you. I thank God that it is good news. It is not bad news. It is still good news. It is still good news. 2,000 years later, they proclaim Jesus as the, as the good news. Good news. God is not angry. I mean, because they had the, the, the back in their time, it was a polytheistic mindset of the, the different gods they have, and, and it was easy to anger the gods, you know, that was the idea, you know, so people were just kind of like, gotta make the gods happy, we gotta make the gods happy, and the whole idea of the, of the cross was that there was propitiation made, in other words, you could even say, you know, look, God's not out to get you, Jesus was the sacrifice, he was the propitiation for our sin. The gospel is good news. When I think about that, I think about what that means when the veil was rent. And now we can approach. You see, it never was that God didn't want to have fellowship. It never was that he wanted to just, he just had a choice because of our sin. But Jesus took our sin. The term gospel tells us how the early church viewed these works. The gospels that we read, these weren't dry historical accounts of Jesus Christ or the life of Christ, but they were versions of the greatest news ever shared. Each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, tell the story of Jesus Christ. The Gospels were meant to be proclaimed. Not just studied. Not just picked apart. 
They're not just simply theological books to be picked apart and studied in some academic setting. They are meant to be proclaimed to a lost and dying world. They were meant to be proclaimed and believed. This is why the, the four Gospels, if you read a lot of your old commentaries, by the way, will, will actually use this terminology. They will call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the four, who knows, the four what? Evangelist. Because they were proclaimers of the good news of Jesus Christ. They were evangelists. They proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not fixing to look at a book or look at books that, that are just dry academic books where we study the life of a man that lived 2,000 years ago because he still lives today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still good news. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just good news for them who got to see Christ in person. They bought. I wish I could have been there. I want to tell you, some of them who were there whenever he saw him in the flesh probably wish they could be here now to see what he's still doing 2,000 years later and still saving souls. People still coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, really. Each evangelist has a story to tell and a perspective to emphasize. Each brings out unique aspects of Jesus' identity. We see that even just in the introduction to each book. The very first verses of each book, we kind of see that. And I'm going to read those to you. Matthew 1 and 1 says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Each one emphasizes something a little different. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the Son of God. Matthew, in, in these introductions, Matthew jumps into Jesus' Jewish ancestry, focusing on how Jesus fulfills the promises made to Israel. Luke tells us that he wants to write an accurate historical account. And the, and the idea of the reason why he wanted to do that is that so they would believe. John introduces Jesus as the pre-existent divine word, the self-revelation of God. Each of these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, paints a unique portrait of Christ. They show us the same Jesus, but portray him from different perspectives. What are these four unique portraits? Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. The fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes. He presents them as a Jewish Messiah. Mark portrays him as, as the suffering Son of God, one who offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Luke, Jesus is the Savior for all people who bring salvation to all nations and people groups. And in John, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the self-revelation of God the all of these four Gospels speak of the same person, and all of these attributes belong to him. Each of the four Gospels gives us a deeper and more profound understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. They weren't written to simply memorialize the teachings of a great leader. They weren't written about martyr. The Gospels were written to proclaim the good news of salvation and to call people to faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. They're still for that purpose. 2,000 years later, they're not some relics to be put on a shelf to give us a history of anything, but to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. 
They weren't meant to be history books, although their history is accurate. They were meant to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. All of the New Testament was really, but we're talking about the Gospels. Alright, so let's look at these one by one. Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament and was written by the Apostle who? Matthew. Right. He's also known as Levi. How many of you know remember Matthew's or know Matthew's profession before he started following Jesus? He was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was was written primarily for a Jewish audience. And, and one, that's one of the reasons why we have four Gospels. Each one of them were written to primarily different audiences initially. And so it's one of the reasons why there are some differences in the way they present things. Because there was certain emphasis that they made uh, because of the audience that they were writing to. Matthew was primarily writing to a Jewish audience. The book emphasizes Christ as king and the promised Messiah. There are more than 60 Old Testament references in the book of Matthew. Even though Jesus is presented as king in the book, Matthew also shows how Jesus was rejected by the Jews because they were looking for an earthly king to deliver them from the Romans, not a heavenly king. They want an earthly king. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's not what they wanted to hear. Really, they wanted him to establish them. <laughs> that was really what they wanted. Establish us. But that's not what he'd come to do. The phrase kingdom of, uh, of heaven is used 32 times and is only found in the book of Matthew. This is because he was writing to a primary, primarily Jewish audience. Christ proclaimed in Matthew, uh, that the purpose of his coming was to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, he says, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily, verily, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall be in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What he's saying is that the law that was established by God, whom he had something to do with that, it, I'm here to fulfill it, not to destroy it. Yeah. Now what he was there to destroy is the works of the enemy, yeah, which their religious system was a part of that, because they had morphed into something that was not meant. So that's Matthew. Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience. Not that if you're not Jewish or not that if, if you're not Jewish you can't gain from Matthew. It, but, but keep in mind when you're reading that, and I want to encourage you by the way, to read the Gospels. To read them. Look at them. Even with this introduction in mind. Mark. Mark is the shortest one of the four and probably the first one written. The author of, uh, of the book is obviously Mark but it is the same John Mark that we see in the book of Acts. He was a relative of Barnabas. John Mark was a companion of Paul and Barnabas on Paul's earlier missionary journey. But he had left Paul for a season. He was not one of Christ's disciples. And many believe that he may have been a convert of Peter, since Peter is mentioned by name so many times in the book, 23 times Peter is mentioned in Mark. And it is believed by many that Peter was the source for Mark's gospel. The book of Mark was written with a Roman audience in mind. Many Jewish words and traditions are explained with the assumption that the readers would not be Jews. It contains very few Old Testament references. This book presents Christ as a suffering servant, yet as a powerful savior. Though he is presented as a servant, he is a faithful one. This would appeal to the Roman reader. Mark is a fast-paced book which uses the word that is translated immediately and straightway 
more than 40 times in its 16 chapters. The emphasis more on the events than on the teaching. It is a concise, fast-paced book, and it appeals to the Roman reader. Christ proclaimed that in Mark that the purpose of his coming was to minister to others and give his life for them. It was said in Mark 10 and 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life for a ransom for many. To give his life for a ransom for many. Matthew and Mark. Now we look at Luke. Luke was not one of Jesus' disciples. He was a disciple of Paul. Paul met the physician Luke when he was in Troas. And Luke joined Paul and Silas in their missionary journeys and chronicled the early church and travels of Paul in the book of Acts. So Luke wrote, of course, both the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, they run together. You read Luke and Acts together, it's like reading the story. Luke was also not a Jew, he was a Gentile. This is the longest of the four Gospels. It is the longest book in the New Testament, for that matter. Luke is the historical journalistic gospel. A thorough account of the episodes of Jesus' life is arranged in chronological order. This gospel was written to establish believers in the teachings of Jesus. He was very thorough in his writing. He meant he was meaning to write an accurate historical account. He did it for the purpose so that those that would read it may believe upon Jesus. That was the idea. The book was written with a Greek audience in mind, which is why it was written the way it was written, and specifically addressed to a man named, anybody know? Mm -hmm. You're right. <laughs> Theophilus. We don't know who he was, but he was most likely a Greek official or a nobleman. This book presents Christ as the perfect man. Yes. The Son of Man. That was the emphasis. He was the Son of Man, the perfect man. And as you know, he had to be. He had to be. For the sacrifice of Christ to be meaningful, he had to be perfect without fault. This idea of the perfect man would have meant something to the Greeks who sought for that perfection. So when they read this, they would have been interested in that. The Greeks pursued perfection passionately, although they never attained it, because no man ever has. Jesus is called the Son of Man 26 times in this book. Christ proclaimed in Luke that the purpose of his coming was to save the lost. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then we get to John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke was the synoptic gospels. They're very similar in how they are written, the story, many of the stories, and one you see in the others. But John was written different. By the way, Mark, we believe, was written earliest, and then Matthew and, and Luke come after that. John was written last, many years after Mark and Matthew and Luke were written. The writer of this book is John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee and the brother of James. There are several evidences that John was the author, even though he was never named. The author was Jewish. He was an eyewitness to the events. These are all found in there. He was never called by name when directly referred to in this book, which would give an indication that it was him that wrote it. The, as a matter of fact, John uh, describes himself in this book as the disciple that Jesus loved. Not because he was bragging. It wasn't meant to be bragging, but it was meant to identify who he was. John writes to a broad audience. He's not writing specifically to a Roman audience or a Greek audience or a Jewish audience, but to all, to the church, really. Yeah, to all the church. Because at the time when John 
wrote this it was at the end of the very the first century there were already errors creeping into the church and John came to emphasize the deity of Christ because there was an error going out that he was not deity and John came to emphasize that, bring that into emphasis. John, the epistles of John, 1, 2, and 3, and also the book of Revelation are all attributed to this same man. They were all written very late in the end of the first century, and they were meant to correct some errors and to bring the focus back upon Christ, the eternal Son of God. As we said, John writes to a broad audience. This book presents Christ as the Son of God, who sacrificed himself for the whole of mankind because of the love of God. Jesus was a perfect Savior. To accomplish this goal of presenting Christ as the Savior of the world, John says that he intentionally did not try to write about all the things that Jesus did. Matter of fact, he said, if I, if I did that, the books of the world could not contain. But the book of John was written to specifically point to an aspect of Christ that was being lost at that point in time. It was written sometimes in the 80 and 90, towards the end of the first century. As I said, it was the last of the Gospels and written for the purpose of correcting uh, some of the false teaching already happening at the end of the first century, emphasizing the deity of Christ. Christ proclaimed to John that the purpose of his coming was to give life. He said in John 10, 10, the thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. John is typically the book that we send new believers to so oftentimes. Start in the Gospel of John because of the emphasis of who Christ is. I don't think you can go wrong in sending Somebody anywhere, I, sometimes, sometimes I think we ought to send new believers to, you know, to Romans or but that might be too much for them. So Ephesians, I don't think you'd go wrong though and send them somewhere. Just probably not, you know, don't send them to Job first. But why not? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go to Job, man. I mean, <laughs> but I love the way that John starts off. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Later on in that chapter, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among them. Christ was very God and very man. And so we're going to see so much about this as we go through. That's just the introduction to these four Gospels. Cameron, you have something? Uh, yeah, I think we can get through a little bit that I have before we actually dive into Okay. All right. Well, thank you for giving me a listen. I'm going to turn it over to Tanner and he'll close the class, finish up the class for us. So, y'all got the handouts that were there actually for the class. That's why you see at the bottom that it talks about uh, chronology and you see it says only one Passover mentioned. And then it says for John it's three to four Passovers. But that's for the purpose of the class. There, you know, yeah. There's kind of a reason. And if you study the book of John, there's a reason. That's John is not one of the synoptic gospels because it's unlike the other three. If you look at the percent unique 42% of the book of Matthew is unique to itself. The rest is like Mark and Luke. Only 7% of Mark is actually unique to itself. Everything else would be similar with synoptic with the other synoptic. Luke's 59%. And you see the book of John, 92%. 92% unique to its to itself. That's how different. The Gospel of John was from from the other. So this will give you some information. But like I said, my dad will probably give you another. Most of these are for the class itself. You got another handout. It's Christ's earthly ministry. 
we'll get to all of this stuff in the class, but just give you these handouts uh, before. So you just see, and it's just interesting to, to look at and see. You see that the year of inauguration, which is the first year of his ministry, it shows that from really 26 AD to 28 AD, or the middle of 28 AD, that says that the masses were drawn to him for his miracles and his teaching. So at the beginning of Christ's ministry, he's super popular. Yeah. It populated grows, and then has a mega following, right? And then, what happens? He starts to get rejected. Yeah. And then, that's it. If you look below, that's pretty much the exact amount of time, the same time that Jesus started to teach on his blood and his body. And really, that I am the sacrifice. And that's where, you know, that's when they say, no, because of unbelief, they reject. So you just got some information there. Uh, as you can see, it's kind of a timetable, so you can kind of get a visual when everything laid out. Uh, the other handout that you have is the number, says the number of chapters in each gospel that deal with the Passion Week of Christ and the Resurrection. So as you can see, uh, there's it's about like 34% of the gospels as a whole. 34% of the gospels deals with the Passion Week and the Resurrection. That's how important it is. Out of all of the, the four Gospels, 34% of that is a pretty large number there. So you can see this is for each one. Now you can't really see it super well because obviously it's not, it's just black and white. <laughs> so there's no different colors. But basically where that line extends out, that's where the division would, would be. There's eight chapters in the book of Matthew that deal with Passion Week and Resurrection. There's six in Mark, six in Luke, ten in John. Okay. And this this handout, the back of Israel, that's what we're going to really uh, get into tonight. So, uh, I'm going to give you just a, a pretty quick, just cover the basis before and the next week, we'll really, we're just going to hop on in, we're just going to start learning the life of Christ. Amen? Amen. So, why four Gospels? Why, why four? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established. Bang. Confirmation. Yeah. Written to different audiences for different points of view because they portrayed Christ from different perspectives. That's how important the life and ministry of Christ was. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Yes. That's the go-to. That's the go-to thing with doctrine. Say what? Well, I got biblical doctrine. You got it two. You got it two or three times. Because if you don't, you don't have a doctrine. Just a one-time thing doesn't make doctrine. That's true. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. So you see, in the book, this is an easy example. In the book of Acts, it says that certain articles that the apostle Paul had got sent out, people. Touched it and they were healed. Now we have ministries that send stuff out. Well, it's biblical. No, brother, you got one instance. You don't have two or three. You don't have a doctrine. So you have a ministry not on a doctrine that's biblical because you don't have it two or three times. It just happened that one incident. That's all you see. And the articles that he sent out were just meant to be a point of contact. That's all. Just like when you lay your hands on someone to pray, just a point of contact. That's it. That's all they really represented. But So it don't happen one time, not two or three times, so you don't have a doctrine. You can't say, oh, well, this is a biblical doctrine that we should be doing. Well, you don't have that. It's only happened one time. So, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. So you have four. <laughs> okay, during during Jesus' Galilean ministry, he did travel back and forth from Galilee to Judea. He didn't only stay in Galilee. So if you have your map, it'd be a good time to eyeball it. 
34% of the Gospels deal with the Passion Week and Resurrection. This shows the purpose of why Christ came. He came to die for our sins and rise from the dead. So the geography of Israel at the time of Christ. That's what I'm going to give you now. That's why you need the, the map. The five main regions of Israel of that time were Galilee, Nicopolis, Samaria, Perea, and Judea. So if you look on your map, you can see uh, Decapolis on your top right. Galilee is just to the left of it. Uh, Perea is down below Decapolis. You got Samaria right in the middle. And then you got Judea down at the bottom uh, left. So five, there's five main regions. The two major regions spoken of are Galilee and Judea. That's what we're going to see the most, Galilee and Judea. Much of Jesus' ministry took place in Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. Jews in Judea, which was the south, were more religious than Jews in Galilee or the north. So the south is more religious than the north. All of us in the south So the Jews in the region of Judea considered themselves, not only did they consider, they were more religious than the Jews in the north, which would have been Galilee. And most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee and Judea. So he went back and forth. Important cities are Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, Cana, and I have the Sea of Galilee, which is not a city, but it's an important area. So Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and then Bethlehem, which is just below Jerusalem, then Nazareth, which is way up uh, in Galilee, Cana, which is right above Nazareth, and then the Sea of Galilee, which is, once again, not a city, but you can see the body of water yeah. right there. You have all these cities around it. Yeah. Tiberias, uh, Capernaum, McDowell, I guess, Bethsaida, and Genesaret. So, Jews in the south, which is Judea, view Jews in the north as second-class Jews. A, a good example. <laughs> Probably going to tell ourselves here. But a good example of this is that uh, Cajuns in this area <laughs> view Cajuns in New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans over there is like, well, that's Cajun. No, that's Creole. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the same. It's not the same. Okay? It is not the same. Well, we went ahead and flew food in New Orleans. That was good Cajun food. And you say that over here. The, uh, no. It's Creole. So that's just a funny example of kind of, you kind of get the idea so, if somebody's listening from New Orleans, you know, I just want you to know that I didn't say that, my dad did. So, <laughs> it is Creole, though. It is, it is Creole. <laughs> uh, is, there any, is there any questions about the, the map? Can everybody kind of see it? Uh, Clearly, yeah. that's how far a distance that was. <clears throat> Four from where? It looks like it's tomorrow. So the, the next thing, and continue to look at your map, the evangelical triangle. That's what it's called. The evangelical triangle is Capernaum. So does everybody see Capernaum? Mm -hmm. Around the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin, which is right above. Capernaum, Bethsaida, that is the even what's referred to as the evangelical triangle. Now this is going to be on the handout, this right here, what you say? It's going to be on the test. It's going to be on the test. We're going to be on the test, the test. 
Sarah, Sarah got the test already before she ever got the information. I was quizzing her at home. No, he was. I was like, all right, Sarah, what's the evening joke for trying? She was like, I never even heard of it. What? Like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this will be on your midterm. <laughs> We've been doing this for over a year and a half. Clearly, we haven't had any tests yet, so you're good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the reason it's called the Evangelical Triangle is because about 60 to 85% of Jesus' miracles were done in these three cities. 60 to 85% were done in those three cities. So, therefore, the Evangelical Triangle. Okay, course outline. This is you definitely want to write this down because this is really gonna be the the path that we're gonna take in the class. So course outline A is overview of the four gospels. B is ministry of John the Baptist. C is birth and boyhood life of Christ. D is Baptism of Christ by John the Baptist. E is Temptation of Christ. F is Preaching Ministry of Christ. G is Healing Ministry of Christ. H, the Disciples of Christ. I is teaching ministry of Christ. And finally, J, which is crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And that is the course outline, basically. That's going to be the kind of what we're going to follow. I'm probably going to give you some more information, like, for instance, I said ministry of John the Baptist as B, but the very first thing we're going to hit whenever we get back next week is the birth of John the Baptist. So, but that's a pretty good, you know, idea of what, kind of how we're going to travel through it. So, because it's not just one specific book, we're going to be, uh, we're going to use the book of Luke for one, and we might use the Mark for another, or, you know, Matthew, so... That's kind of the idea that I am, uh, that's all I got for you tonight. And next next week, uh, we're going to just start on the birth of John the Baptist. So but I'm excited about the class. I've been excited about this class. Uh, I'm, I've been so excited that I'm studying so far ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm excited for what the Lord's going to do. I'm excited for what we're going to see and, and learn. And just to learn about Christ, learn about why He came, and just the different things that maybe, maybe when you went through the Gospels as you read it, you didn't quite see it through the lens of the cross. Honestly, uh, I find that to be true as I went through it with the looking at through the cross and interpreting scriptures through that that I began to see things differently and it really opened things up, opened up uh, the words and works of Christ like I've never seen it before.